Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen, uh, for your very kind words of welcome, and thank you for your invitation to come uh, to the lifeboat. Uh, it's lovely to be here for your midweek for these uh, couple of meetings next Wednesday night in, in, in the will of the Lord. Uh, and what a topic uh, we have to share and to speak on tonight. Uh, now, it has been announced the attributes of God, and we'll not get through them all in one night. It will take much longer than that. But what a topic, what a, what a, a wonderful topic uh, for us to speak on and for us to come around God's word uh, even tonight. I want you to turn uh, by way of introduction uh, to the prophecy of Isaiah, and we'll read some verses of, from this great chapter, the 40th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, and we'll just read a few verses. We will be uh, turning to multiple verses tonight, selected scriptures, we would say, uh, and we'll go through that. The 40th chapter of Isaiah, and we'll read some verses here together. And I want you to really focus in on the words. These are words that perhaps you have read many, many times. But as we come to this great topic tonight, I want you to really enter into what God has to say to us. And I want you really to think of the majesty and the greatness of God. His majesty. His, the wonder of who God is. The 40th chapter of Isaiah, and we'll commence to read at verse 8. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as very little thing. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken unto God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power, not one faileth. And dear friends, if we were to never utter another word, we would have said enough. God. Let us, let us before we turn to this passage and uh, these scriptures, let us have a word of prayer together. Our gracious and eternal heavenly Father, we give thee praise and we give thee thanks for this tremendous privilege that we have to come and to bow before thy throne. We pray, Lord, as we have read, we bless your word. We praise you for thy word. And we pray, Lord, tonight as we consider this majestic, overwhelming topic, 
the study of God. We pray that you would indeed open and enlarge our hearts, we pray, in our Savior's name. Amen. I, I am resigned to this fact, and I've said it many times, is how we view God is how we live our lives. And dear Christian, this evening, how you view God, what you think of Him, is how we live our lives. Our understanding of God and His character determines overwhelmingly how we live our Christian lives. A high view of God leads to high and holy living. A high view of God leads to high worship, doesn't it? A low view of God leads to sinful, it leads to carnal living. A low view of God leads to low, empty religiosity. It leads to low worship. How we view and how you view God determines how you live your life. It's that important. A.W. Tozer said these words. He said, What comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What we think of God, what you think of Him. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you belong to Him. But how do you view Him? How do you view Him as you consider your justification? that you have been redeemed, that you have been set free by His precious blood, how you deal with tragedy, how you deal with difficult circumstances in your life. How we view God is how we live our lives. The study of God is, comes under the umbrella are, are known as theology. Now, I don't want you to switch off when you hear this word. The study of God, theology. That's the study of God. Theo in theology derives from the Greek word theos, which means God. Ology, the latter part of theology, so the, which derives from a Greek word, which means God. Then we have ology, which comes from the Greek word logos, or word. That's where we get our word logic, logos, ology. We meet the same word in chapter 1 of John's gospel when we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Theology. What a, a word in and of itself. That's the study of God, his character, his attributes. Of course, today, Theology sounds like any other ology, area of study. We have biology, and we could go on, which is the study of life. We have sociology, which is our social behaviors. We have psychology, which is the study of the mind. Theology is the study of God, and always has been and always will be the overarching Study to which all ologies must kneel. Theology. 
Now, in the Middle Ages, theology was known as the queen of sciences. It was known as the philosophy and her handmaid, the queen of sciences. Of course, now it has been stripped of its superiority. We know that. It has been stripped from academics' thought. It has been placed on the shelf. It has been placed as another area of study, another ology, if you like. Take it or leave it. In the same vein as biology and sociology and physiology and psychology and all of these things, it has came down onto the level of all other areas of study, the study of God. In the 17th century, it was known as the gentleman's hobby, the study of God. Of course, that was all to change in our church history when we consider in 1859, we had the writings of Charles Darwin of the, um, his book in 1859, Origin of Species, which was a seismic shift. We had Spurgeon, who was the great expositor of that uh, 17th century, and we had many academics and many men, even many ungodly men, had a, a high view of God and a high view of theology, and the study of theology was right at the pinnacle of all other study. But of course, from the writings of The Origin of Species, which was Charles Darwin's work in bringing into doubt, well, does God exist? Is God real? Did He create the heavens and the earth? And therefore brought a confusion. It brought, it mellowed down this great theology, the queen of sciences. Here's what Spurgeon wrote. He said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. And dear people, this evening, there is no other study known to mankind that will ever fill the heart like theology, the study of God. When you consider this, all other studies and all other ologies and all people who study secular ologies, if you like, go away gratified, saying to themselves, I am so wise. I've filled my brain. I've filled my understanding. And all of these studies we leave having been puffed up in and of ourselves. But when we consider the queen of sciences, when we consider the highest and lofty of all, we come away undone. We come away knowing that we are depraved, knowing that we are fickle, knowing that God is in control. How can we study God and His majesty and His purity and all of His attributes and come away feeling that we are wise? Our knowledge of God and His character is essential. It's absolutely essential. Theology isn't only for the professors of the universities. 
Theology is not even for the ministers and clergy and all who would stand behind these desks, sacred desks. Theology isn't just for the elder, for the deacon, for those who hold office. Theology, our knowledge of God, is for everyone. It's for all of us. And many people say to me when, when we speak on these things, well, that's too deep for me. That's, that's above my head. Well, dear people, this evening, that isn't the way that we should be. Theology is for us all, and if, if we don't have that desire to know Him more, to know His character more, to understand His majesty, to understand something more about Him, then there's something wrong with us. Our thrust is to know Him more, and not only academically, of course not, but to know Him. To know Him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that when you come to where I am, and he was the, this great expositor of the 20th century in Westminster Chapel in London, he said, when you come to where I am, there is only one thing that matters. That is your relationship to God and your knowledge of Him. How is your knowledge of Him tonight? Is it sparse? Is it mediocre? Is it quite thin on the ground? We could say basically and principally, to know God, and obviously to know God, to, to know Him at this majestic level, to know God is to have eternal life, and that's to make an obvious point. It's to have eternal life. And each of us, those who bear his name tonight, you have eternal life because you know him. You know something of what his son did for you. You know something of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross of Calvary that was accepted by the Father. You know something of sins forgiven. You, you, you know him to an extent. It's to have eternal life, and what a, what a wonder that that is. John 17 and 3 tells us, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To a lost world, this is nothing, there is nothing more important than securing our eternal life, is there? There's nothing more important than that. So nothing is more important than knowing God to a lost world. And that's the thrust of our evangelism, to tell others to know Him. Do, do you realize that you need to repent? Do you realize that you need to know God? That's for a lost world. The Apostle Paul identifies the fundamental problem of, hum, uh, of humanity as ignorance of God. That's the thrust of Paul's message, even in this great, the great epistle of Romans, uh, the people's ignorance of who God is. Truth is suppressed and exchanged for a lie. That's what Paul said in Romans 1. Romans 1 and 25, who changed the truth of God 
into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what modern thinking is. Has changed the truth of who God is into a mere lie. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Modern thinking has become futile. It's become dark. It's become more depraved. The, 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 the mind, man, man's minds, as Roman 1 uh, tells us, has become debased. Their, our passions have become dishonorable. Our relationships are contrary to nature. Our behavior is shameless. That's for a lost world out there. It, the behavior is shameless. It's without affection. It's without natural affection. Why? Why is this? Well, we know the result is of a fallen world, but why? In a sense, because of our false notions of who God is. False notions that one day that they will stand before Him. False notions that they will become accountable to a, a holy and a righteous God. The world has depraved with false notions of who God is. We wouldn't need to speak to too many people and you would soon, those who are unsaved and you wouldn't belong realizing that they have a complete, another false view of who God is. That's the world out there. They, they have changed, suppressed and exchanged the truth for a lie. Using his name merely as a curse word. Why? They have no knowledge of who God is. No knowledge. And the prophet Hosea identified this as an essential problem in ancient Israel. It's been a problem, problem right through the ages, a, a misunderstanding of the character of God. Did Hosea not write in 4 verse 1 that there is, there is no knowledge of God in the land, he said, in, of ancient Israel? Hosea went on to say that my people are destroyed for what? For lack of knowledge. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Haven't a knowledge of who God is. Calvin wrote, where there is no knowledge of God, there is no religion. No piety, reverence is extinct and faith is destroyed. And we could say collectively without making an obvious point that this is the basic problem in our world today. We have seen the slippery slope even from the 17th century where people had a reverence for who God was and we have seen the decline in our families, in our government, in our society, in our schools, in our academic systems, all of these things, Queen's University, which their coat of arms used to be the Bible on their, on their crest. All of these great universities were built on biblical principles, Cambridge, Oxford. And we see the decline, particularly as we mentioned earlier from 1859 with the origin of species, we have seen a great decline and the knowledge of God has become less and less and less. So much so that our children barely know his name other than a curse word. We see the decline in the knowledge of who God is. 
And dare I say, with children, and many of you perhaps were brought up with catechisms and all of these, the shorter and the longer catechisms, what, 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 what great truth to instill in children. And we see the decline and we see the declension and there we have a world that is depraved. Unfortunately, this same problem has continued to plague the people of God. This same problem. And this same problem of a lack of knowledge of who God is has sadly infiltrated into church life and into family life and into the heart of the believer. A, a, a lack and a basic knowledge of who God is and His character and the, and the study of God. The writer of the Hebrews, he rebuked his readers with, a, with, with more or less a failure to mature and progress spiritually. That's what he was rebuking them for. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, we read, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and nothing of strong meat. What's that saying to us? Many believers today are, have such a basic understanding just a, a fickle understanding of the, the attributes of God and his, and his majestic character. Terry Johnson writes that milk is sufficient for a child, but not for a mature adult. For adults to be bottle-fed is a tragedy. You know what a, big, a, a large part of the problem is today? And I believe it with my whole heart is that there are many believers have become so lazy with the study of God's Word and lazy with the things of God that they're grown men on bottles and still on the milk of the Word, still on the milk of the knowledge of who God is. Milk of the Word. Paul had the same complaint against the Corinthian church. He called them infants in Christ, he said. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, he said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet know are ye able. Commentators have said that many Believers mature in their age are not yet past the spoon. Not yet past the milk. Dear friends, this evening, we need to study God. We need to know who He is. Not only study His character at a at, a, 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 at, a, at an academic level. That's not what I'm saying. That's applicable. But to know Him. And as, you, and as I studied this, it certainly was a challenge to me, is how much do I know of Him? How much do I know of His character? Can I point to 
passages in Scripture? Is it clear to me? Is it coming to me when I think of His character? Can I, can I very clearly and concisely explain to those who are not saved, to those who are saved, of the character of who God is? Is this not a problem of our age? We have a, a basic understanding. We need to be accurate. Reliable thoughts of God are only to be found in Scriptures and in Scriptures alone. It's not our ideas. It's not our notions. It's not our traditions. That's a large problem with even many believers today. They're going on their own feelings, going on their own notions, going on the traditions of those who perhaps have gone on before. And dear people, this evening, our ideas and our study of God is in Scripture and in Scripture alone. And when we go outside the boundaries of Scripture, we're into heresy very quickly. That's why our reading and study of the Word of God is totally and utterly important. Today's widespread ignorance of God can be traced in a large part to a failure to submit ourselves to the revelation of Scripture alone. That, that, that is a, mass, a massive problem today. A massive problem when it comes to all areas of doctrinal study. People are going outside of Scripture. People are going on, as I've said, going on their feelings. Treating all the doctrinal issues that are in the Word of God by how they feel. Scripture and Scripture alone. Anything else, as I've said, leads to heresy. It leads to false doctrine. It leads to where many, where many we have got our cults today, where it has seemingly started right and it has ended in, and ended in disaster. All of our, of our lack of knowledge of who God is, as revealed to us in Scripture, we need to be clear, we need to be concise, and we need to be studiers of the Word of God. The Westminster Catechism it asks the question, what is God? Of course, the answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. How many of us knew that? That simple answer that God is a spirit, first of all, He's, un, he's infinite, He's eternal, He's unchangeable in His being, in wisdom, in power, in holiness, in justice, and goodness, and truth. And Charles, Charles Hodge described that answer of the catechism as probably the best definition of God ever penned by man. And these things ought to be on our lips. These things ought to be driven into our hearts of who He is. The existence of God is engraven on man's heart, even though he doesn't know it. The, existen the existence of God is demonstrated surely in creation. That's what 
the Word of God tells us. Men may disagree with the deity, but his conscience declares the existence of God. That's, that's clear. Spurgeon wrote again that he said, atheism is a strange thing, he said. Even the devils never fell into that vice. There is a God even for, for a world that is out there and for a world that is unsaved and for those that have a lack of knowledge of God the Bible tells us, and we can all agree with this, that even in their deepest conscience, they know that there is a God. We read in Romans 1 and 20, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. And what does it say? So that they are without excuse. The, the greatest sinner and heathen of all, because of creation and creation alone, he's without excuse. How can we say that there is no God when we take a look at the creation that is around us? And yes, we get so used to these things. We get so used to the creation of God. But, but think of it for a second. In the great expanse of eternity, which, which stretches behind Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but even before that, even before the great creation of God, we, Pink says that the universe was unborn and created, only existed in the mind of a great creator. I want you to turn to Psalm 90. And when you think of the creation of God, when He began to create the universe, as we read in Genesis 1-1 with this great account, we think of what existed before this world existed. Well, we know that God existed. He's pre-existent. He had no beginning and He has no ending. Psalm 90, we read, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. We can't get our heads around that. We can't get our heads around that God had, had, the, had no beginning. He had absolutely no beginning. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. They, that, that falls under the study of the aseity of God. He is pre-existent. He, 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 he is not determined or existent on anything else. He's self-existent. A God who has no origin, self-existent, no external power brought him to existence. And there we had before the world was created, this planet earth that you and I dwell in, and the universe. We read in the most attacked verse in all of Scripture, we read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Why is it that that verse is such under attack? Why is it that the academics go straight for Genesis 1-1? Why is it for those who may, might agree somewhat of Genesis 
and then they go on to, to, to infiltrate their own ideas. Well, the, well the, the, the arithmetic of the world is around 6,000 years, and then there's many people believe that there is, a, there is a case that the world is billions of years of age. People with a, a foot in both camps, and again, once we go out of what it says in Scripture, and Scripture alone, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before God created anything, He possessed life Himself. Hard for us to imagine, isn't it? All God spoke into being finds its origin in Him, dependent upon Him, Him and of Himself. He sustains His own existence as well as the entire universe. And creation has forced man to acknowledge a supreme maker. Surely, when we consider, and we'll consider in a second, some more of the details of this great creation from a holy God, surely man has to acknowledge that there is a creator. Thomas Watson wrote that, who could provide such rich furniture for the heavens? The glorious contils, the firmament with such glittering lights. How can we say, how can mankind say, even in his own conscience, going contrary to his conscience, for he knows that there is a, a God. He knows that there is something that created this universe. We see God's glory blazing in the sun. We see it twinkling in the stars. Was it not the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 19 and 1? He said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Of course, we have, even as believers, have become so used to these wondrous things. These winter evenings when we go out and we see the, the stars and we see the third, or we see the second heaven, the planetary heavens that are out there that are above our, our heads and we see the twinkling of the stars. The heavens declare His glory. The, the, the majesty of a holy God, the, the wonder of His existence, the, the wonder of His creation. And then we go beyond space into the universe. We get lost with the numbers. We get lost with the magnitude of the, the wonder of it all. And how is it that we get so bogged down into our own little finite thinking and we get so used that we don't think there's anywhere bigger than Dungana? And we don't think there's anywhere bigger than our minds, than, than Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom. We, we, we get into our own little box, our little uh, finite mind, and we get lost with it all when we consider the, the wonder of God's amazing creation. Let's consider very quickly the distance that is measured in light years uh, beyond when, when we look up into the the Bible speaks of three heavens. It speaks of the, it speaks of the heavens that, that, that are above us, that we're, we get our water cycle from. 
Did, that's what they said in Noah's time, the, that God opened the windows of heaven. That's known as the atmospheric heaven, the first heaven. Then we have the second heaven, which is known as the planetary heavens. This is what the Bible speaks of. That's what we see when we go out in these beautiful evenings. We see the planetary heavens. And then we have the third heaven. That's where God dwells. That's where you and I cannot see. That's where people have spent billions and billions of pounds in trying to develop telescopes to see black holes and to see something that is beyond our universe, our observable universe. The mind boggles when we consider these things. The universe is so big that it's measured in light years. So one light year, if you can stay with me, one light year, is 5.88 trillion miles. So, our observable universe, the, the universe where scientists can see, and that's very limited, the observable universe is 93 billion light years. So, if we did the mathematics, if we did 93 billion multiplied by 5.88 trillion miles. That's what our observable universe is, and there is much more beyond. And we get so, we, we get so tickled in and of ourselves, and we get so hoity in and of ourselves. The world is so hoity, and when we consider even this fact of the, the observable universe being 93 billion light years in diameter, And that's only what we small, finite humans can see. If I put this into context, Pluto, which is our furthest planet in our solar system, it's 3.7 billion miles away. And if we were to travel at 65 miles per hour to go to Pluto, it would take us 6,293 years and a lot of fuel. 3.7 billion miles. Let's consider the stars for a second. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. More, grains, more stars than the grains of sand. And when we consider this, and I want you to listen to this, there, scientists have told us, and it's very, very questionable, but scientists have told us that there are 200 billion trillion stars in our observable universe. 200 billion trillion stars. And we read in Psalm 147, verse 7, He telleth the number of the stars, and He calleth them by all their names. He tells us that the hairs on our head are numbered. He hasn't only counted them, but he has numbered them. And he knows 200 billion trillion stars in our universe, and there is a vast lot more than that, and he knows each of them by name. How is your knowledge of God? How you, live, how you live your life 
is how you view God. Or how you view God is how you live your life. A low view of God will lead to, will lead to a low, mediocre life. When, when tragedies, to go back to my introduction, when, when tragedies strike, what is your knowledge of God? When the bad news comes, what is our knowledge of who He is? We read also, speaking of the stars, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And it simply says by the account of Moses in Genesis, and he made the stars also, just at the end of that sentence. He just made the stars also our knowledge of who He is. 1 Corinthians 15, 41, we read these words, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For the stars differeth from another, and star from glory to glory. They all differ. All of these stars are different. Every snowflake that falls is different. All our DNA is different. Everything is different. And people would say, why should the sun be more glorious than the circling planets? Or why should the stars of the first magnitude and others of the tenth? That's what A.W. Pink says when he was considering the stars. He also says, why, why should there such be amazing inequalities? Why should there be shooting stars, falling stars, wandering stars, all of these different things that we can't get our heads around? And the, the simple answer is this, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. When we considered only very briefly the creation, and we could go on and we could go on and we could go on, about the creation that God has planned it all from before the foundations of the world with His redemptive plan and all of these things. Consider creation in and of itself, we see something of the character of God. Walk you around some of the most beautiful tranquil of gardens, some of the most beautiful places on planet earth, and you'll see something of the character of God. Take the simple flower in your hand, the daffodil, the rose. Take a look, uh, take a look at its intricacy. Take a look at its detail, and you'll see something of the character of God. The wonder of it all for us to enjoy. And my dear friend, this evening, we have such a small mind. We have such a finite understanding, such a, a fickle understanding of who God is. And it all comes back. It all comes back to what we could say. What saith the Scripture? What does the Scripture say about God? I don't know about you, but I, I long to know more. 
My passion is to know more something of his character, something of the depth, and we haven't even considered his redemptive plan. In saving a depraved, hell-deserving sinner, that he would take us from the, the, from the burning. We haven't even considered his, his love, his redemptive plan. The earth spins at a thousand miles per hour on its axis anti-clockwise. One thousand miles per hour we're spinning anti-clockwise. Whilst doing so, we are traveling through space at 67,000 miles per hour. That's maybe why some of you feel a bit dizzy in the mornings. When you consider us traveling, we're, we're spinning at a thousand miles per hour anti-clockwise and we're flying through space at 67,000 miles per hour. And yet our ministers, our, our government ministers and our world leaders have the audacity to think that they are in control. And one, one inch off a axis and we would, we would be gone. We're 93 million miles from the sun. With these two verses of Scripture, we'll close. With that in mind and with this context, we read these words. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as what? Grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Job 26 and 7, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth on nothing. This vast topic is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our understanding, and less so with my feeble way of trying to introduce to you something of the creation of God and His character. I feel so feeble and inadequate. And yet, I would urge you, and as I even have told myself, I want to know more of Him. I want to know more of his character. And once when we are overwhelmed, overwhelmed with who he is and what he has done for us, we pray for revival, that will bring revival. That will bring revival to our hearts, knowing of who he is and who we are and what he has done for us. That's what will bring about revival. Our knowledge of him, his majesty, his unbelievable mercy in our lives. I urge you to study the character of God. Hopefully next week we'll have more to say on this great truth. Thank you very much for listening.